Good morning. So I have to tell a quick joke story that happened this morning. Um, someone asked me, I won't, I won't name any names, but someone asked me, um, can you move the fan away from me because I don't like cold air in my face, but I'm okay with hot air, so you can preach as long as you want this morning. <laughs> it was a good joke. Uh, we're jumping back into Matthew 7, so I'm going to pray, and then we'll go back in. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would, you would by your Spirit, make our minds, our hearts, our souls, just everything about us, you would make us receptive, that we would be fertile soil for truth to be sown in us this morning, and that we would, we would not just be encouraged and then not be changed, but we would actually be transformed to take the gospel and the truth that we hear this morning to the world, to wherever we live, to our families, to our neighborhoods, our cities, everywhere, Lord. I pray that we would be a people who live out our faith in every pocket and nook and cranny of our lives. And so, Lord, I, I know that I can't, I can't force myself to do that let alone say the right words this morning. And so, God, I pray that you would supernaturally transform us this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's open up to Matthew 7. It feels like forever since we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. I had a, a really good time doing the vision potlucks. The uh, last two weeks, we popped the hood on our mission and the vision of our church. And uh, really, for me, food is enough. <laughs> I love just gathering together and building relationship over a good meal. And some of y'all can cook. I'm just going to be honest. Some of you can cook, like, really, really well. I mean, you all, you all have, you bring tasty things to gatherings. But some of you bring especially tasty things, like... Looking at you, Tom, with those little smokies. You're welcome to bring those anywhere, anywhere I'm at. So we're back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 7 through 12. Jesus is saying, ask, this is the word of the Lord, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? 
So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. May God bless the reading of his word. So my daughter Cora, she does this really cute thing. Um, Holly will bring, um, Cora's one, for those of you who don't know. She's our youngest. She's, well, she's a little older than one, but she's, she's just starting to walk. And so she's got that like wobbly, like not really know how to get around yet, but I'm kind of trying. And uh, Holly does this thing where she'll bring Cora to my office if I'm like working on a sermon or something, I don't know. I'm, I'm in my office at my desk and Cora will bring, or Holly will bring Cora in and she'll say, go get daddy. And, uh, and she's having to coax her, you know, go get daddy. And Cora will like peek around the doorway with this like shy, like grin on her face. And she doesn't want to actually come through the door. She's just really shy and timid. She's like, I don't know. And so Holly has to like really coax her in. And eventually she'll walk in and, you know, I scoop her up with a big hug and it's, it's a warm moment. But there's something like that going on in the text this morning. So this is one of the more hopeful passages in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is doing something similar to what Holly's doing with Cora in that moment. Jesus is is basically getting us to the doorway, if you can imagine this, and all in that, let me just disclaimer, all analogies break down at some point, okay? All analogies break down, otherwise they'd be reality. So Holly uh, bringing Cora to the door, it's like Jesus is like doing that with us with the Heavenly Father, bringing us to the doorway. If you can imagine your Heavenly Father as your dad sitting in an office and bringing, uh, bringing to the doorway and saying, go, come on, your, your heavenly father is delightful. He wants to see you. He's eager to pour out his love. He's eager to embrace you and to bring you into relationship and give you good things. So what Jesus is doing. And Jesus, he's been pretty adamant throughout the Sermon on the Mount. This is one thing I really hope you notice. When you read through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is very persistent with saying, hey, God is like our Heavenly Father, or He's like a father. The Lord's Prayer, He provides, He knows the needs of His children. And if you are in the kingdom of God, you are one of God's adopted sons and daughters. And so, Jesus is drawing this parallel, and so it would be right to say, God is not like a father, He is a father. God is our Heavenly Father. If you this morning have faith in Jesus Christ, you have God as your dad. And so all of the benefits that come along with that, being an adopted son of God, are given to you in Christ. And so Jesus wants you to know this, because this changes everything. You guys know this just in general with like, I mean, some of you know, like family of origin stories. Your dad specifically, can shape you. People who have father wounds, for example, you, you know if you got daddy issues, like you know personally the shaping force of a father. And so Jesus wants to consistently draw our attention to God the Father and say, look how good he is. Look how good your heavenly father is. And so God uh, delights in providing, nothing's too small, nothing's too ordinary. Like God delights in providing, like whether it's rain, sunshine, um, putting food on the table. I mean, Jesus is saying everything. God the Father takes great joy 
and providing for his dependent children. This is something that a good dad delights in. But there's one thing above all things that Jesus is saying, seek from your heavenly Father. So if you remember Matthew 6, 33, the one thing that we are called to seek from our heavenly Father above all else is seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is the main thing. So I want to zoom out because I have screen brain because I'm a millennial. I picture pinching the screen or whatever, you know, and just zooming out. I know, everyone's dying in here. That's how colonized my mind is from the screens. But if you can picture it, you're on like a Google Maps page or something, and you just like scroll out and poof. Remember Google Earth? Does anyone do that anymore? <laughs> you can like see the globe. So this is what I want to do theologically, is I want to I zoom really far out and I want to get the lay of the land, because I don't want us to miss the tendency when we're in a book or a passage of Scripture for so long, we tend to miss the forest through the trees, or miss the forest for the trees. And so I want to zoom out and just remind you of some things. You're all humans, right? You're not Nephilim. You're all human beings in here, as far as I can tell. You're lizard people. This means that every single one of you is on a quest. You're on a journey. You're on an epic journey headed to the land of your dreams. And I know that because I know with confidence that every single one of you in this room pursues happiness. You all want to be happy. That's like the base level, gut level desire of every human being that has ever existed and will ever exist is that we are created with longings that we want, and I like to use the phrase, the good life. We want the good life. And so every single one of you is on this quest. And this is why we love um, epic literature. This is why we love stories like Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or whatever, anything. We love that stuff because we love seeing a person journey in this epic saga, conquering, you know, slaying dragons and defeating the giants and getting the prince or princess and getting the treasure and finding happiness in the land of their dreams. We love that because that is all of our stories in general. And Jesus validates that. So what Jesus is, if you think Jesus, this is super important, is if Jesus, if all Jesus is to you is a guy who rolls up on the scene and he's a good boy and he's telling you how to be a good boy or girl and not be naughty, then that will affect the way that you see the rest of the scriptures. This, this will not be a path to the good life. You will see this as a barrier to the good life. If you do not see God as fundamentally drawing you closer to himself and into the land of your dreams, into the good life. And so all of this we know comes from God. It's, it's really good to be reminded of Genesis 1 through 3. Um, this, is, this is where tons of theology goes home to roost. Genesis 1 through 3 is a massive section of revelation from script, like from God. This is something we need to always be well acquainted with. So I'm going to remi remind you of some things. That desire to be satisfied with the good life, to find the good life, comes from God himself. 
That desire leads to God. It finds its ultimate end in God himself because we were made to find satisfaction in God. Because in Genesis 1 through 2, the Bible paints a picture of a garden paradise. You guys are familiar with the Garden of Eden and that imagery? That's where human beings were made to live and flourish, to live with God in close relationship, to have meaningful work to do. This is why a lot of us aren't satisfied with just punching a time clock. There's a, lot of, there's a lot good about going and working a job that you don't like and sacrificing to provide for your family. But we all want something to do with our hands that means something, right? That we take an ordinary sense of satisfaction with. That's a desire that comes from God because God made us to tend and keep the garden. The gift of family. Intimacy and marriage. The fruit of children. All of those things we see present in the garden. God's gift to us is a flourishing life. That's what He made the original human beings to flourish in the Garden of Eden. And so He gives us a picture of the good life here. But something terrible happened. You guys know the story. Human beings fell. Adam and Eve fell. We read in Genesis 3 that one of God's creatures, who's a fallen spiritual being, they call the devil or Satan, took the form of a serpent and deceived the first human beings. And so at the heart of this deception is that you can, the lie there was that you can find the good life on your own, without God, apart from God's design. That you are basically your own boss, the author of your own story, living your truth, basically you're your own God. That's at the heart of the lie, was that autonomy was the pathway to finding the good life. Instead, the rest of Scripture testifies that the, actually the problem is autonomy. The solution is being in reconciled community. First with God, then with one another, then with the rest of the creation. So what we fell from was intimacy with God. So it was, a, it was a, that's why estrangement, separation, like something being ripped apart, that's the imagery used to describe the fall. Heaven and earth separated. I mean, all those types of imageries that we hear about and, and read about, and, and we see this in movies. I mean, this is, this is the story. A fall from grace, a fall from home, a feeling of displaced wandering, right? This is the human condition, is that we're estranged, and we know as Christians that our primarily problem is that we're separated and estranged from God. So Jesus, first and foremost, came to bring us to God. This is where the good life is found, is in right relationship with your maker, with God. But because there is the fall, because this, this exists, the whole world was placed under a curse. And so, because sin entered into the world, it polluted our hearts from everyone from Adam and Eve down, now struggles with a heart condition that we can describe being full of sin. We have a, a pollution, a cursed, a curse that we have to live with and interact with. And so the, the old hymn that we sang puts it this way, we're prone to wander. We're prone to wander. You've heard people say, I'm only human. 
that's a really simplistic way of the, the idea of the fall and sinfulness is baked into our understanding of the way the world is. We are human. We struggle with sin. And so the main point of reason why I bring that up is that our tendency is to stiff arm and, and to put out a, a, a no thank you, I'm going to do it on my own. Our tendency is to stiff arm the goodness of God. And Jesus is saying, hey, look, Everything in you in your heart says run from God, run from his commandments, run from the Bible, run from his people, run from church. But you're heaven, I don't know about, I'm not saying I'm good and perfect, but Jesus is saying lift your eyes to the heavenly father who is good and perfect. God the father wants to provide for you. He does. And so that That's some big theology there. Jesus is lifting our eyes, lifting our gaze, and he's saying, look, God is not like your fallen dad. God is not like the people that have wounded you. God is perfect. And when we really believe that, we really trust in that, we then start to lean into God in every circumstance of our life. You need a job? I know a handful of you in here are dissatisfied with your job. If you think God is a big principle in the sky with a ruler and he's just wrapping you on the knuckles for being naughty, you're probably not going to go to him first with your struggles with your job. I really wish I had something that was emotionally more healthy for me. I I really wish I had something that would provide for my family. I really wish I had something that would would be a career. If you think God doesn't care about those things and is indifferent to those things, then you will start down a path where where you compartmentalize your life. You'll say, God's over here with the spiritual stuff. God's here with church. God's over here when I have really big problems like I'm on the verge of divorce or someone I'm close to just died. That's where God, God's at. Or, or God is for my unbelieving neighbors and family members and coworkers. So God's over here with these containers, but the rest of these containers over here, like I go to concerts, uh, I have a job, um, I, I have a house that I like to do repairs on, whatever, everything else in your life. If God really is to you, your father, you will come to him with every need you have. So there's a basic invitation to come to God, baked into the Sermon on the Mount, come to God like a dad. And I have no idea where I'm at in my, <laughs> my manuscript. So let's jump into verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So this is the language of prayer. You guys should be familiar with this by now. It's the language of prayer. Jesus, again, is he's calling his followers to pray like dependent children. And this is good news because, read verse 8. This is good news because everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks will be opened. This is because, as Jesus already pointed out in verse 32 of chapter 6, God already knows your needs. He does. He just knows you. 
He knows you better than you know you. He knows your needs more than you know your own needs. God wants you to flourish. Jesus goes on to describe uh, and illustrate the Heavenly Father's like eagerness. You feel this? Like there's an eagerness from Jesus. And he does this by contrasting it with negative examples. Jesus has been doing this throughout. He's a brilliant teacher. He says, or which one of you, if his sons ask him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. These are supposed to be like jolting you like, oh, I would never, I would never give my kid a serpent or bread or a stone to eat. Eat rocks, kid. So that's what he's saying. You wouldn't do that. If you then who are evil, so there's a little bit of theology of sin there, Jesus assumes that you guys all are sinful. You're polluted with sin. You're sinners. And so if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So this is where we see the nature and the character of God. The nature and character of God is he's good. We sing songs about it. And think, this is supposed to draw your imagination into the lavishness of God. Many of you in here don't think that God is lavish. You think he's stingy. Oh, he's just going to give me basically, just barely what I need. Just barely I'm going to feel comfort or peace or hope or have money, food on the table. Just barely because God wants me to learn a lesson, you know. We see here that God's actual desire for us is to experience the lavish grace and love that he wants to provide as a dad. So picture, um, picture the best dad that you know. Some of you have had fantastic fathers. Some of you have fantastic fathers. Um, I know some of you in this room, I'd be delighted to have you guys as my dad. And, uh, and I'm picturing, I'm asking you to picture too, it doesn't have to be your dad, but picture some of the best dads you know. Think about what they do. You know, I'm thinking of somebody from a previous church that I knew. The guy seems to have boundless energy. He's always, he's always doing experiences with his kids, you know? He's got a huge family, and the guy, I don't know how he can keep it all together, but he's like fit, and he has energy, and he's always bringing his kids, uh, doing activities in their yard, and I don't know, it's like they're going to this thing and this thing, and they adopted kids from another country that it was actually a real big hassle to get them. And he just seems to like have a motor that's always going, and his kids are so happy with him. They're so happy. But you think about that. Think about the contrast Jesus is, is pointing out here. The best dads on earth pale in comparison to our Heavenly Father. It's not even close. So is that your theology of God? the very, very best earthly examples that you can possibly imagine are like stones compared to bread. Serpents. Like, it's not even close. God is in a completely different category than any of you, than any of your earthly dads. And that's good news for us. And that's why Jesus keeps going and pointing us to that. Uh, Luke 12, 32 puts it even more straightforwardly says, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
It's his good pleasure. That's the true and better Chick-fil-A server, right? It's his good pleasure. Like, he wants to. I know I'm saying the same thing over and over and over again, but, but you guys will walk out of here and live your life as if that's not true. You don't think God likes you. He does. God the Father likes you. He doesn't just tolerate you. So if God is so eager to give us the good life, what stands in the way? It's a good question to ask. What, what's the barrier to that? What's the roadblocks? What stands in the way of experiencing the good life with God? The simple answer is, is that it's our sinful hearts. Our hearts want what is contrary to true and lasting happiness with God. So, one of the best illustrations of this is uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. I've referenced this a couple times in a sermon. Have you guys read it? The Great Divorce? It's a pretty old book, but um, it's, it's fantastic. It's fiction, so everyone calm down when I start to talk about heaven and hell. This is not meant to be a theological, you know, articulation of exactly what this is like. The premise of the book is uh, there's a bus that goes down to hell and picks some people up, brings them up to heaven. And then they have conversations with angels and people up in heaven, and they're trying to convince these people from hell to stay. Hey, stay here. And one of the things they experience is that everything in heaven is way more real. It's like the leaves are heavy, and the blades of grass are, are just like really like tangible and tactile. Like everything is just more vivid in heaven. And, uh, and so it takes a minute for them to get used to. And one of the conversations that I find very interesting in that book is there's a painter that goes to heaven. And I'm paraphrasing here a lot, but the painter is walking around with this angel, and the angel is like, okay, here's this beautiful paradise here, and God's here, all these, just, just praising all the wonderful things about life in heaven compared to hell. And this painter keeps saying, can I paint? Hey, I need to go get my painting supplies. Can you, can you just hold on a minute? I need to go back and get my painting supplies. And the angel's like, um, sure, painting, whatever, but like, look at this. And the, the painter just won't let it go. It's like, I need, I need to paint. There's our sign. It's, that, it's really that windy out there. Um, it's fine. It's down now. <laughs> but the painter just won't let it go, right? I want to paint here. And the angel finally says, you don't understand. When you were first starting out in painting, you saw beauty in the world, and you wanted to capture that and to, and to show others that beauty. You were compelled by something outside of yourself, and you wanted to capture it. And now, painting became painting for painting's sake. Desire bent inward instead of outward. And so you, the painting thing is this narcissism. And the angel says, this line kills me every time I'm, I read it, is like, you're in the painting. You are in the very thing that all of your hopes and dreams and desires and creativity were aiming at and trying to grope in the dark to reach out to grab, but you just couldn't quite get there. 
That is what paradise is like with God. Jesus is bringing us into that. So that, that's a vision. Like Jesus is trying to capture our vision and our imaginations. And so many of you are in that same place this morning. You, you want to be happy. I know you all do. You want to be happy. But your desire, instead of, instead of pointing it out, you tend to point it down at stuff that's not God. Like, I don't know, could be good things. Working out, fixing your house, food, alcohol, anything. It could be anything. If it's not God and you're making it an ultimate thing to satisfy your ultimate desires, then it becomes idolatry very quickly. And so the call of Jesus, this is why Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry, he calls us to repentance. This is not a like, I'm going to club you over the head to make you feel bad and just say sorry, say sorry, say sorry. That's how a lot of you think repentance goes. Repentance is an invitation to turn from these lesser pleasures, turn from won't sat, what won't ultimately satisfy you, and turn to Christ who will ultimately satisfy you. So repentance is about a turning and reorganizing your entire life for the pursuit of God. And you need to hear the voice of Jesus this morning. It says, fear not, little flock. It is God's desire. It's God's desire. His desire to give you the kingdom. So the invitation this morning is to turn. I don't know how long you've been walking with Jesus, but turn afresh to the benevolent Heavenly Father this morning. Turn to Him. See his, his posture towards you is goodness, it is kindness. How do we know that? This, this right here, how do we know God loves us is one of the most important questions you could ever ask. How do you know? It's not your bank account, it's not your good behavior, it's not your circumstances, it's not your feeling that you get. I mean, there's a lot of people that make even church to be something, something to fulfill them apart from God. I don't know if that makes any sense. If, all ch- if, you're, if church is only to get the hair on the back of your neck to stand up because the emotions are hitting just right, and it's about that alone, then that has the potential to set you up for some massive disillusionment in the future. Because ultimately, that's a, it's, the Bible says, a broken cistern. It's a well that won't satisfy you. Like to put it simply, if you're here because you just want the music to make you feel good. And this doesn't just apply to here, it applies to anywhere. God is drawing us to himself to find ultimate satisfaction. But how do we know God loves us? Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Some Sunday school stuff. We need to always come back to this. So if we want to know and be reassured that God loves us, we look to Christ crucified. There's something we can point to and say, God loved us so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross for our sins to bring us into a place of flourishing. God loves us that much. The cost of sin was so great But the love of God was so high 
that we see at the cross this massive demonstration that our Heavenly Father, He actually does like us. He loves us so much that Jesus, He sent Jesus to die on the cross. This demonstrates the deep, deep love of the Father. So I don't need to, I don't need to, I don't know who needs to hear this this morning. God loves you. He loves you. I said that to a coworker once. I was working at uh, a bakery in Des Moines. And uh, I, I just heard over and over again issues with her father. Over and over again. She's a young girl and uh, she had pretty profound daddy wounds. And I don't know, I just, I felt this, I felt the Spirit say, just tell her God loves her. And so all I said, I didn't, you know, wax about the theology of the cross and all these things. I was just like, has anyone ever told you, I said it like this, has anyone ever told you that God loves you? And she said, no. No one's ever told her that. God loves her. And so we can't take this for granted. This stuff's got to move through our brain containers and down into our hearts. It's got to go all the way down there and infect with a good infection the knowledge that God loves us as a dad. He loves us. So this is the connective link. You might be wondering if you're attentive. This section here about asking, seeking, coming to God in prayer, eagerly knowing that He's a loving Heavenly Father and He will give us the kingdom. This little section here seems to be unrelated to verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. What I want you to see is that the gospel is the connective link between those two. And what I mean by that is, what do you really want? Think about that. What do you really want? I've been saying it from the beginning of the sermon. Well, you want, you want to be happy. You want to be satisfied. You want to live the good life. Well, that can only be found in Christ, in God's kingdom. And you know that when you've tasted in that, you've tasted in the goodness of God, you believe in the gospel, you know that that is the ultimate thing. Like, that is the thing beyond anything that anyone could ever give you. So the question, whatever you wish others would do to you, well, what do you wish others would do to you? What has God done for you? Ask that question. What has God done for you? Well, he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross to take away your sin and to give you his righteousness, and now you are a beloved son or daughter. That's the best gift that you could possibly have, communion with God and the assurance that you will one day spend eternity with Him in paradise. That is the ultimate thing that anyone could do for you. And so, then the question is, then there's the comma, whatever you wish others would do to you. I mean, there's lots of things you wish others would do to you, like, hey, don't give me a hard time for being vaccinated or not being vaccinated. I mean, there's a lot of things you want people to do for you. But ultimately, what has God done for you? given you the gift of the gospel, so do for them. This is the great turning, the hinge there, is that you are called to go share this good news. Like, if you've experienced any ounce of the love of the Heavenly Father, you know that there's nothing else like it. There's nothing else like God and being in communion with God. And so, then Jesus is saying, go. 
turn and go and love your neighbor. That's why when you see here it says, for this is the law and the prophets. Some of you are fam- some of you have read your Bibles a lot know that like this is a familiar phrase that comes up sometimes. It's basically Jesus saying this is the summary of God's instruction. God's instruction to God's people. Um, it's really common to say, love God, love people. You've heard that, right? Lots of churches have a really good mission statement that says, love God, love people. That's true. That's a really, really good summary. But it's not the gospel. Love God, love people is not the gospel. That's actually the summary of the law. And so you know what the law does. Apart from the gospel, the law condemns. So this is why we cannot extract Jesus' teachings from the person and work of Jesus, because it will become another hoop to jump through. Because I don't know about you guys, but I can't fulfill the law perfectly on my, on my own. I can't even love, as a dad, I can't even love my girls perfectly. I have every incentive in the world to treat them with kindness and love and grace and humility. And I fail at that sometimes. And if you're honest with yourself, you all fail at that at times too. And so we need the perfection. We need Jesus to fulfill the law on our behalf. And that's why grace is the banner that the Christian church holds up. If we hold nothing else up, it's the grace of God found at the cross. And so the gospel becomes the fuel that actually motivates us to go and love our neighbor, to fulfill the law. So Jesus is calling us to go and do likewise, like go and and love others. But we only can do that well if we know how much God loves us. Does that make sense? We see the love of God, and then we want to reflect that. And so I like the phrase gospel culture. You guys ever heard of that? Gospel culture. Well, a culture is essentially what the habits and the practices of the people, like what we're cultivating, you all have a culture in your family. You know, certain practices that you do, certain habits that you have. Maybe it's you have like a, I don't know, you have a greeting for different people in your family, or you have like a certain meal, a celebration that you do. You have a culture. Well, the culture that should emerge out of Hope City Church is a gospel culture. And so, if you see a if we live the golden rule out, like, like Jesus, this is why, if you go back to uh, Matthew 5, the very beginning, the beginning of the sermon, Jesus is casting a vision for a gospel culture. Blessed, so reminder work, blessed means flourishing, it's a state of being. Flourishing are those who are merciful and receive mercy. Flourishing are those who are pure in heart. Flourishing are the peacemakers. Flourishing are those who who hunger and thirst for righteousness. People who have been forgiven and, and have the righteousness of Christ and are in right relationship with God, if you really understand that, that becomes an overflowing fountain that you go out and you want that, you want others to experience that. You want other people to be in right relationship with God and with one another. And so our church, if we are living out the gospel, we should be marked by that. We are not a people who bite and devour one another. 
We're a people who reflect the benevolent love of the Father. God's posture towards us is benevolent love. So our posture towards one another and towards the world should be benevolent love. This is why I cannot get on board with there's certain pastors and preachers and other voices in our culture right now who are just, they, they bite. Everything they say is so, ugh, like it's everything. It's like, oh, there's divide, it's divisive, you know? Like satire, jokes, everything is just, it's, it's divisive, it's hateful. This section of the Sermon on the Mount is like lifting chins, saying, check out, look at God the Father. It is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so it should be our good pleasure as Hope City Church to extend mercy and love to those that are out there, even the most hostile people to us, even the hardest to love, because you were at one time very hard to love. And God sought you out despite yourself, despite the mistakes, despite all of the stuff, and loved you anyway. So that fuels us. And I, I like saying this phrase, this is what I'm going to end with. Um, I didn't come up with this, but banquets, not bunkers. We're a people, if we're living out a gospel culture, then we should be eager to create banquets and not bunkers, hide in bunkers. We are a people that have a benevolent posture to spread a table in the presence of our enemies and to invite those in to experience the, the, the love of the Heavenly Father. So we need the Spirit to help. So let's pray and then we'll worship and ask God to help with that. And Jesus, Lord, I pray that... I pray that you would produce in these people in this room a, a benevolent posture. Especially the dads. I, I pray this morning specifically for the dads in the congregation that they would reflect the Heavenly Father. And that these sons and daughters, these little sons and daughters running around, even this morning, would grow up and they would see their dads as conduits, that they would look along, they would look along the pipe and they would see down that, that they would see down the path and they would say, oh, I can see that God is like my dad in this way. He's, he's good. He's loving. He's forgiving. He's patient. He wants reconciliation. God, I pray that you would transform us this morning to be like that. You would capture our hearts and minds with your goodness. And then it wouldn't just be words we say, but it would be a pillow for us. We would, we would cling to your presence because we know that you're good. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.